All right, we can do this. We're professionals. <laughs> That was the opening music to Don't Look Now, released in 1973 and directed by Nicholas Rogue, based on a novella by Daphne du Maurier and starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. And I'm Matt Johnson and I'm recording today from North Bend where we're having summer-like weather. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles welcoming you all back to Classic Movie Reviews. Yep, and you can find us in Apple Podcasts. Uh, just search for Classic Movie Reviews and look for the, the one that has the black and white logo. And in Facebook, just search for ClassicMovieReviews.net, and that's all one word spelled out. And on the internet, just type in our website address, www.ClassicMovieReviews.net, and you can see a listing of all of our episodes and read the synopsis, and all that good stuff there. Well, this movie is, is amazing. Daphne de Mornay, de Mornay uh, did a lot of uh, novels and short stories that were made into films. Rebecca, or My Cousin Rachel, or one of our favorites, The Birds. The Birds, yeah. we got to review birds. that one. we got to review it. Well, we've got that on our list. So here's the synopsis of my takeaways from this film, which was released in October 1973. Are you ready for this? All right. I'm interested to hear how you're going to synopsisize this thing. Okay. Well, these are. this is actually more of a list of, 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 of plots. Number one, was Donald Sutherland punished for his daughter's death? Question. The locations are cold and dreary, Correct. Is the, cellular, is the serial killer involved in any deaths? Was, was his wife in on the plot to, to offed him for revenge? Jeez, oh, that's dark. Did the police guy know more than he let on? The two sisters, where are they from? Heaven? Hell? Oh, man. Did his, did his wife pay them for their part in this? Could could Venice have looked any more deserted and ghostly? And what did Catholic Bishop know? He always had a weird look on his face, like he knew something more than he was saying. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so, yeah, that was strange. I don't know if that's a synopsis or those are the questions from from the. And I didn't even touch on the nude scene. That shows my age, I guess. Oh yeah, that that's pretty famous or in, infamous, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was in there, and when, when it came up, I was like, whoa, where's this going? <laughs> well, uh, it, it, this is a rhetorical question, but I found that that added nothing to the film. Oh, well, I think it did serve a, I, I think it did serve a story point, though, a plot point, actually. The love scene has been talked about because it's dark and it's right in the middle of 
a story that would apparently have no reason for it. As I recall, he pretty well had it in his mind that the picture, that that scene was not going to be cut in a, in a linear fashion. And I seem to remember having several conversations with him about this before I sat down to cut it. And he, and he more or less told me that he wanted to do it back to front. Again, wasn't thought of, ooh, we, it wasn't in the script. And we shot that last scene very quickly. Very, very quick. Um, unbelievably quick. We shot it in an hour and a half. No one knew we were shooting it. We rented a room in the, in the Bar Grumwald Hotel and we shot it one Saturday, one Saturday afternoon. And it was just Nick, um, a focus puller, Simon Ramsley, and myself. And obviously Julian Donald. We shot it with a little handheld camera, smuggled it into the hotel. The rest's history. It wasn't necessary to the storyline, except it began to be. It began to be on the set more so. But the more I thought about it, I wanted to make it as normal as possible. And I think this is what its power is, because it isn't a seduction. Most love scenes, when you think of love scenes in a movie, they're a seduction or they want to be with each other. A lot of love scenes, for me, are put into movies for a little bit of titillation. I mean, this is an integral part of the story. It wasn't a love scene. This was two, two people, a married couple, at it, having a good go. I mean, I don't know what else I can say. <laughs> I mean, doing it, um, as opposed to the traditional sort of Hollywood thing, of a little kissing and cuddling. You know, this is a couple that hadn't made love for quite a few years. Um, and, you know, for all the psychological reasons, the death of the daughter and, 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 and Julie's character, and then suddenly they actually make love. Um, so I watched all of the making of videos that were on the Blu-ray, and I have... I don't know if I have answers to your questions, but I have I have things that the director and the actors said. Oh, <laughs> fire away. Because you notice in this, I never revealed a uh, spoiler on the final. How about we don't spoil this I, one? I think we should leave it for people to enjoy or get really depressed. I don't know. It kind of depends on your mood that day. So fire away. Well, before we jump into all that, uh, I did want to make a couple notes that many consider this to be Nicholas Rogue's masterpiece. Yes, it comes up every once in a while where they'll do a screening in the theater and I'm going to keep an eye out for that. And I would love to see this in the theater because I thought it was really well shot, like the cinematography. Oh, it would be great on an 80 foot screen, wouldn't it? And they filmed it all in six weeks in Venice, mostly on location there, uh, a little bit in England at the beginning. And it was done in the winter time, so it was the off season, so it was not busy and a lot of things were closed. That's why it looks so deserted. Don't Look Now was so difficult. I mean, it was so difficult. And it's um, just to shoot in Venice. I mean, was just, it's, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, you, everything goes by boat. It doesn't go by truck. And, um, you know, we shot very, very quickly. I mean, we were in and out of locations. We shot the picture in six and a half weeks. Shooting in Venice is an extraordinary thing because uh, it's a beautiful city. It has its season. It's very strange. Winters are really quite grim in Venice. There's a sense of isolation and separateness. And the characters in it had had a terrible catastrophe in their life. You know? And but their life, they were trying to make their life go on. 
but there's inevitably a separation with people, couples that have a terrible tragedy, you know, like the loss of a child, is can bring people together, but it can be terribly isolating in your grief. So I think that is part of its eeriness and its strangeness, its sense of doom. They did some of it where they were going to take down some buildings or redo them. Yeah, the church that they found was actually a church that was being renovated, so that yeah. was kind of fortuitous. And the fog, the fog that's in the scenes uh, is real Venice fog, and apparently... Wow. For whatever reason, there's no more fog in Venice these days. It's 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 gone. So I don't know if that has to do with I have no idea what that has to do with, but it's interesting. And they shot it with these little portable cameras and they did some things that were kind of a first. They were able to push a 50 ASA film up to 100 ASA to get those interior light uh, scenes and they did a lot of natural lighting with like candles and and light through windows and whatnot and so that was kind of cool to learn about about how they did that and the the music was uh, composed by Pino Donaggio and this was his first film composition he was a pretty famous Italian singer at the time and there's a there's an interesting connection between him and our next series of movies, which are going to be by Ber- movies that have music by Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann was supposed to add music to Carrie, which was directed by Brian De Palma, but he passed away before that movie was began began filming. And so Brian De Palma reached out to uh, Pino Donaggio and asked him to do the music. So. So yeah, it's just a weird, I didn't have any idea about that, but that's kind of a weird bridge to our next series of movies, which we're going to talk about at the end of this episode. It, re- it really is. The piano sequence at the opening is played by Pino, and he played it as if he were a new student who was just learning to play the piano. And he did that to kind of convey a sense of innocence and youth. But I also think it it was really weird. Like it, it was just something about it was off, and I think it set the mood the mood for the whole movie really well. That opening scene with the little girl running through the field and the horse kind of running off in the background. Yes, it was very surreal. The whole film, in in many ways, is surreal. The locations, the the lighting, the cinematography, the story, the music. Donald Sutherland. I don't have the exact quote, but I'll paraphrase it. He uh, said that the director was a genius and, and uh, really could could put together films like this because of his creative skills, and, and, and he really had the highest respect for him. He did some other films, that one uh, that I've never seen called The Man Who Fell to Earth in, in 1976 with David Bowie. Oh, 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 that's one of my favorite, favorite movies. We're going we're gonna to review... We're going to review that one at it. some point. That's one of my favorite movies. Okay. It's well, so good. Uh, can you answer my many questions? Was there punishment involved for the daughter's death? The first time I watched it, I, I thought maybe a lot of the movie was just flashbacks of like things that had happened mainly in his head. Like they weren't actually real things. And then I started to watch all the making of videos. And apparently the movie's really about ESP and like parapsychology. 
I think we're supposed to be led to believe was that he was psychic. And at the very beginning of the movie, when he is looking at those slides and then he suddenly... Oh, yes, right. When Yeah, he's in this house. Yeah, and then he suddenly gets this weird feeling like something's wrong with his daughter. So he just runs out and he realizes that his daughter had drowned in the in the pond. But he doesn't know that he's psychic. And I don't think that the that his wife, played by uh, Julie Christie, uh, Laura Baxter is her character name, is, is psychic. I think that he is. And so when they go to Venice... And they meet those two women. I, 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 at first I thought maybe they were like con artists, like scamming them to try to get some money or something. And I think he thinks that too, because he's very, he's very wary of them. And, and, but his wife, because of the death of their daughter, is sort of mourning and having a really hard time. And they kind of give her some hope, like, well, she's okay. She's actually with you. She's happy. She's laughing. And she believes them. And she, she really thinks that they, they know what's going on. So to answer your question, I, I I think that it's a movie about sadness. It's a movie about loss. It's a movie about coming to grips with what, what had happened. And I think, and Donald Sutherland has this great quote. They call it a horror picture. And it's, it's horrible only because of grief and loss. Incredible sadness. Originally in, in, her screen, in her story, the child died, I think, of meningitis, which is a death that happens. You lose a child to a death, it's a terrible loss. But if you lose a child because she stumbled into your pond when you weren't looking for her, looking at her, taking care of her, and dies as a result, then it has to do with neglect and guilt and irresponsibility, and that's unpardonable. That you carry with you all of your life. And so I think he's, I think he just has a ton of guilt and like feelings of that it's his fault. Yeah, r- and I, right. At first I thought it was like maybe the wife was the one who was more traumatized by it, but I think that actually he was the one who was more traumatized by it and that he is kind of working through all that while he's in Venice. Wow. Yeah, I think that's probably a more logical one than I came up with more reasons for things. Was his wife involved in some kind of a revenge and then you know, I get the. I'm thinking about the police detective and the uh, bishop in the Catholic Church, and maybe they sense something about him, about Donald Sutherland's character, in terms of of his uh, perception and ability to to foresee things. Maybe that's part of that story. I don't know, but. I just thought those two characters were played in a very mysterious way. Oh, they really were. And the and just these weird looks that they would give and everything about it just gives you the sense of the weird like something's just off and I and a lot of times I felt like we were underwater you know like like when you go underwater and you open your eyes and everything just looks distorted and like off yes it yes just, and not to say that it was like distorted film it's just the feeling that I had when I was watching it it it. It to me it was like a a uh, an extended two hour dream. Yeah, yeah, like a dream. It was just it, things were because you could there were flashbacks and then they would flash forward, and the red coat appears in different places in different ways. And remember that scene in early part of the film when the red coated figure is in the church. Yeah, in a picture, and then the and the picture starts to change, and I'm like. Wow, that is, 
that's a part of his perception. Yeah, I think so. I think that was, I think because later he's looking at that slide and it's in perfect condition. So I think that that, yes. that smearing of the slide was actually not something that physically really happened, but that's like us like looking through his eyes and, and it's part of his, his ESP. It's like, it's part of his perception that yeah, of the reality right. of his world. The red, the use of red, there was no red in the costuming or in the set decoration, except when something foreboding was happening. One tiniest dot of red is an extraordinary thing in a frame, in a picture. And I know that um, once I was working on, many years ago, on um, a sequence, when I, I was photographing a sequence in a film, and there was a painting in this sequence done by quite a well-known artist of a woman sitting in a brown room in a brown... Everything was brown, but she was... It was a nude picture of her sitting on a, on a sofa, half turned away from the artist. It was beautifully shaded in browns and dark browns. And except her nipple was one scarlet dot. just in the frame of this picture. And when we came to shoot it, the art director took a painting. It was only it was this picture that was given. It was offered up. And he said, I think that's too much. And shaded it with a little beige. And the whole picture disappeared. It was amazing. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I think it hurt you. It was too late, the picture was gone. The red, it's hardly, it's really hardly there if it weren't, but very sparely it's used in terms of the frame. It's a bit seen, something, what was that? You know, when they were pulling that woman out of the canals by her feet and kind of like lifting her up on that crane, they had kids all around that in these red caps and I think they had a red um, lunchbox. Go through your questions again, and I'll, and I'll give you a reaction to each one. First question was, was he being punished for his daughter's death? I think he was punishing himself. I think that it was, it was him. Like not, there wasn't like any kind of supernatural element to that, other than he just was incredibly guilty feeling about it. So that's my take yeah, on that one. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And then there was, what, my question was, was the, was the serial killer involved in, 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 in the film toward the end? Well, I think that I think that the ending scene that is that is the serial killer. I think the next question was was his wife in on a plot for revenge for the way he had uh, neglected his daughter. Okay, so this is where I think I could make a comment about the sex scene. So, <laughs> <laughs> in my take of the film, just watching the two of them and the way that they're directed is I think that they are they really love each other a lot and they had this really traumatic experience and in some ways it's kind of pushing them apart and they've kind of got some distance between them but then once that she has that conversation with the two sisters it's like this weight is lifted off her shoulder and it's it's immediately after that conversation that they end up going back to their their room and having sex And to me, that sex scene was just very much like normal, everyday sort of like married couple sex. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like, it wasn't meant to be gratuitous. It wasn't meant to be sort of like voyeuristic. And 
there's a lot of uh, speculation of whether they actually really did have sex in that scene. And Donald Sutherland says that they did not. And any question that there was any kind of reality to that, forget about it. Uh, because uh, Julie and I, we had hardly met. And we, we were standing naked. And we walked like two people going into a death chamber, into this thing, into this room with a bed, and uh, traumatized, but eager to do, as I described before, what, whatever Nick needed. And he and Tony were in there alone with cables going out, and, and there is no sound on it. There's no, there's no sound of, of the, the performers. Um, they just had two unblimped aeroflexes. Do you know what an unblimped aeroflex sounds like? Like that. Like, like, but, but, but with the rhythm of a sewing machine, because that was the kind of motor that they were run on. And so they were, and the, the, the cuts, the, the, the actions were very, very short, measured in seconds. And it would be like, uh, Julie, Tilt your head back, Donald. Move your head toward Julie's ear. Okay, cut. Um, Julie, turn your head this way, darling. Okay, lift your chin up a little bit. Okay. Okay, Donald, uh, move yourself up. That's it. Perfect. Okay. Okay, Julie, come. It was like that. It was like that. It was like that. <laughs> okay, Julie. Okay, thanks. It was like that. For both of us, we walked out of it like that. And he he describes the whole setup. And after listening to him, I believe it. And I've been on film sets before, and it's it's not it's not like a, a set, it's not a place where you would you, you would want to do that. And they just met as well. So to me, it was just a really well crafted kind of intercutting of them in bed together, and then them getting ready to go out to dinner later, and. And it just suggested things, but it never actually showed that much. So that's my take on it. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I had fun with coming up with these questions, though. Um, and what did the police detective know? He always seemed like he knew more than he was letting on. Yeah, I I couldn't tell if that was a cultural that, like language barrier thing or if he because he was he seemed very sincere in that interview of wanting to kind of help. No. Tell me what happened from the beginning. My wife met these two women a couple of days ago. And uh, one of them, the blind one, claimed to have seen Christine, her dead daughter. She said Christine was happy. My wife collapsed. And when she came around, she, she was totally changed. She was happy. She had come to terms with the death. She, uh, she was her whole self again. We were... Did you ever row? Row? No. I, well, yes. Uh, I was only trying to protect her. It was, um, but it was. It didn't make any difference anyway because she uh, she went to see the women anyway, and and she came back, and uh, last night. Uh, then we went to bed. There was a. Uh, a call from England. Our son goes to school in England, and the school phoned to say that he had had uh, had an accident. My wife said that she had been warned, so I put her on the first plane to England in the morning this morning, and uh, I, I saw her go. I mean, I, I put her on the boat, 
Uh, I saw her leave at 8.30. Have you called the airport? Yes, the, the plane was full, that's all I know. Please go. And then I saw her uh, between 10.30 uh, and 11 o'clock on a boat. I was on a Vaporetto. She, she's here in Venice with, with those two women. What is it, Mr. Baxter? I do not understand. If she's in Venice, surely she will get in touch with you. If she can. What is it you fear? killer on the loose, the murderer. My wife is not a well woman. Yes. Yes, of course. I hadn't thought. There must be more. There's nothing more. My wife got something from these two women, something that doctors couldn't give her, that I couldn't give her, something that she needed, so she went with them. Where? Where, I don't know. I, I, I was outside, went inside the pension last night, where they live. And today, when I went to, before I came here, I went to look for it. It's, it's vanished, I know. So now she's with them. Why should one criticize you for being worried? Thank you, Mr. Baxter, for talking to me. I am grateful. Okay, I'll be at the uh, Palazzo Vendori. I want you to help me, Mr. Baxter. Try again. Try and find the pensione. It will make me feel we have your cooperation in a real way. Pim, and they actually did go arrest those two, the two sisters, which was like, yeah, that's wow. true. They, yeah. You know, like these are really competent police detectives. <laughs> and and boy, that uh, police uh, depart, uh, direct uh, detective's office was quite Spartan. It was. It was. It was huge too. <laughs> <laughs> and then the two sisters, where where were they from? Well, in the short story, they're where? from Northern Ireland, I think, or they're some, somewhere in England. Um, or, oh, or, okay. You know, United Kingdom, let's just say that. Um, and they were there on vacation, and th- there was, like, s- some speculation about maybe they were, like, t- teachers, and they'd saved up all their money to go to Venice and, like, have this long vacation, and kind of retired and the 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 one blind sister may or may not have been psychic i think it was just happenstance that they ran into each other okay and then my last question what's up with a catholic bishop what did he know what did he not know i think i've answered that one just by what you've been talking about he he could perceive that something in sutherland allowed him to uh 
see the future. Did you remember? Do you remember that scene when after he almost died in the in the church and he almost fell off of that scaffolding, yes. and he comes yes, out and he, uh-huh. he's all shaken and the 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 bishop comes out and says, "Well, do you want to sit down?" and and Donald Sutherland's character says, "No, I think I'll go for a walk," and the the bishop's like, "Well, do you mind if I walk with you?" And so they start walking down along the canal and Donald Sutherland starts says. Would you like to sit down a few moments? No, I'm I'm going to walk for a bit. Uh, May I walk with you? Please. My father was killed in a fall. Yes? Yes. It's unbelievable. What? My, My wife was... Warned that, that I was in danger. Warned? <laughs> it was, uh, it was a, like um, it was a, a kind of prophecy. I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy. I do, but I wish I didn't have to. There was something supernatural there. I kind of felt something supernatural about the bishop. Like maybe he did know something was going on. Uh, well, those are my questions. And well, I, in terms of my rating in the film, I give it a 10. Because it's it it just holds my interest. I, w- I want to see it again, which I will. So I, w- I went on IMDb and I was like, let me see what other people think of this movie. Because this is a really weird movie. <laughs> and It is. There are so many people that give it nines and tens, and then I think there's an equal number of people that gives it give it ones and twos, and they say this is the most boring movie ever. Why do people like this movie? I don't get it. This is so dumb. There's nothing that happens. Nothing happens in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were seeing a different film than I was, and and the people that are giving it nines and tens are saying things like this is a masterpiece. This is a tour de force in filmmaking you know incredible editing the music is is perfect and you know they actually use scenes from this movie in film school for examples of like intercutting and like uh foreshadowing and things like that um so i i'm gonna give it a 10 i'm gonna fall onto that side of i just thought it was really amazing filmmaking like i just loved watching it and and the story held my interest and it was so weird and there were so many points during the story where i was just like what is going on i'm so confused yep Yep. i I, i'm at the same place as you are we're both coming in at 10 uh it is a genius at work in putting that together i think but i could see where some people that you know view view things in a literal way or were expecting something completely different like a kind of a right direct hit on on a murder or something like that could would be would be disappointed in it not me boy yeah so a couple i had a couple other thoughts one was that the editor graham clifford should be credited as well for doing an amazing job and apparently a lot of the inner cutting was pre-planned so you know there wasn't it wasn't like they went into the editing room and said well now what are we going to do with all this footage it's no it's like no we're going to we're going to intercut these scenes. We're going to do it like this. And then they, they got exactly what they needed to put it together. Mm. So that's why they were able to film it in six weeks. 
Well, I read, I read a lot of comments about how the genius uh, quality of the director. So that would apply to the to the editor and the cinematography too. Julie Julie Christie was friends with him and and had you know seen his work as a cinematographer in other films and then had seen some of his other directing work and it was like I I want to work with him and then when this film came up, she had reservations about it because of the use of the character at the end and and we don't want to give away the ending but just but you know what I'm talking about yes um, I, yeah and I she do. she yeah. says that I I actually thought about even it made me worry about doing the film because I don't like to see people being made frightened of people who are already right. disadvantaged we're all frightened of, of, of anything that's slightly different and those people have to live with it and overcome it and I don't like to um, exacerbate it <laughs> However, I knew that, and I knew I didn't agree with that, but I did make that film despite those qualms, but um, life is compromise. And I, thought, I, loved, I loved her kind of pragmatic attitude about it. Do we have time to, uh, to talk about our uh, upcoming films? Because we have selected the four. We have selected the four. We've, we've, uh, Matt and I have put our heads together. We've come up with four Bernard Herrmann films. Uh, we selected them because of the music that he's put together for all of the films that we've watched and many of the films we've already done a podcast on included uh, Bernard Herrmann music. So uh, these are four films that we have not yet reviewed. My, there's even more after that if we want to do that, but I think four plus what we've already done should probably be ample. The first of these films, uh, in terms of the uh, year in which it was released, is The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which was recommended to us by a listener. Yes, and I apologize ahead of time if I, I mispronounce your name. I uh, should have asked you ahead of time. William McCallion, and he recommended very, very highly The Ghost and Mrs. Muir and pointed me to a website, which I'll link in the show notes, uh, that really goes into detail about this film and, and the music that's in it. So thank you for that, William. So that's our that's one of the films. And then from 1954, we selected Garden of Evil, which is uh, uh, kind of an early uh, Western with Gary Cooper and others, and Susan Hayward, filmed in Mexico. And then we uh, are going with The Wrong Man from 1956, which is a docudrama uh, with Henry Ford and Vera Miles, excellent film. I believe it's an Alfred Hitchcock film. And then uh, one of our all-time, oh no, J Journey, yes, that's right, I'm sorry, Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959. Which you started to say is one of our all-time favorites. I can definitely say it's one of my all-time yeah. favorites. I, I really, really enjoy that movie. Even though it's a little bit, I don't know, it's a little bit cheesy at some parts, but it's still still enjoy watching it. James Mason and the woman I just forgot her name is there under under the earth in the in the bowels of the earth, and she's spectacularly dressed in almost all the scenes. I think it's part of her character. She's like not going to let you know these hardships of being under the, the going to the center of the earth perturb her. Absolutely, I, I, I really li I really like that about her character. Actually, and I believe. It's Arlene Dahl, I, I hope I have that right, who was married to, wait for it, Fernando Lamas. Oh, my gosh, great. <laughs> so anyway, those are the four that we'll be coming up with next. So, 
I'll throw it back to you, Matt, here on my cell phone, microphone, laptop setup. Uh, yeah, we had a little bit of technical difficulty this morning. Did we ever? Pull, pulling it together. Um, so, yeah, so this may have sounded a little bit like not our normal setup for a podcast. It's a little unconventional, but I think that's totally appropriate given this movie, which was really unconventional and weird. <laughs> and I think it's, this is one where I think you really, we really don't want to like give away the ending. Um, you definitely should watch it. I love this film. I really, yeah. I really do. Yeah, me too. I'll, I'll let you know if it's coming back to the theaters for some kind of a film screening. and we'll, Okay. Maybe we can go see it. Yeah. That was Don't Look Now. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt Johnson. And from Los Angeles, Bob Johnson. Wishing you all happy movie watching. Yeah.